Welcome, it is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. And you're probably wondering what on earth, uh, where, where, where is the opening? Well, I do this every year and it is completely different from what you would normally expect from conservative talk radio. It really is. Uh, this is a day where we don't talk about politics. We talk about uh, higher order topics. And to be honest with you, I have given you the call-in number and you cannot call. And the reason you can't is because I have a hard time doing this um, without getting emotional, uh, at least this hour. And I just, you're just going to have to listen to me talk. We're going to worship together today. You can't go to church. It is Good Friday. It is Holy Week. Easter is on Sunday. None of you can go to church, and so we're going to do it together today. And believe it or not, I'm going to do this all over again this evening for three hours uh, on a on a bunch of other radio stations, not in Georgia. And uh, there there will be a lot of me on radio today. And by the evening, I, I'll be in a in a mental space. I got asked to do something similar and just let people call in. Um, for now, though. I just I want to talk to you about higher order topics, and I want to talk to you about the significance of this day in history. It will be religious. You are warned. Uh, it will be deep, uh, and it will be somewhat emotional for me. Maybe not for you. I'm going to try not to cry. Um, but I do this every year, and I started it in 2009. I'm sorry, 2011, nine years ago. This will be the ninth time I've done a Good Friday show. I started it because when I got my job in radio, I fell into radio by accident and I had never worked for a company that uh, worked on Good Friday. Every company I'd ever worked for, Good Friday was a holiday until I got into radio. And I just decided, by God, if you're going to make me do work on Good Friday, I am going to do a show on Good Friday. And none of them had any idea what I was talking about. And I guarantee you, your station that you're listening to me on now had no idea they were getting into this today. So I did the program and the management of the company was not very happy that there was so much Jesus talk on the radio on, on a conservative talk radio station, no less. And they were, they were sent directive down to my boss to, to cut it, tell me to cut it out. And then we were overwhelmed over the weekend from Friday to Monday with phone calls from people demanding to have copies of the show and thanking the station for having put on the show. They had never heard anything like it on a conservative talk station, and they so appreciated it. And now it, it is expected of me. I have an obligation now to do it every year, and it is somewhat burdensome to do this program. But let me tell you why I do the program the way I do it, just so you have a sense of it. Uh I realized when I got into conservative talk radio that there was so much politics and it was increasingly political and that today is actually a very important day in human history. The, the anniversary of the event uh, that is known as Good Friday is actually objectively a an important day. And you don't have to believe me. There was about a decade ago now, Harvard conducted a global study of historians on the most important events in human history. And there were a number of events that you would expect on there. The rise of Lenin, the fall of, of the Russians, the rise of the Soviets were, was on there. Uh, the American Revolution was on there. Caesar crossing the Rubicon was on there. Alexander the Great conquering the world was on there. Surprisingly, 
the number one thing among these historians, and these were not theological scholars, these were actual academic historians at major institutions around the world, the number one event was a guy, a carpenter in Jerusalem being executed sometime around 33 AD by the guy's name being Jesus. Now, the overwhelming majority of the people on the survey did not acknowledge, accept, or believe that he came back to life. But they acknowledged, accepted, and believed that he was a real human being. And as a real human being, this man who was more likely than not a not well-educated, except obviously in Scripture, but a, a poor person from Nazareth who was born in Bethlehem, as best we can tell, who did actually exist by the standards of history, did exist. He died a criminal's death, nailed to a cross, and the events subsequent to that, the events of a large number of people believing he rose again from the dead had a profound impact on the planet. And as some of the historians over the years have pointed out, beyond now the survey have pointed out, something clearly had to have happened, whether it was psychological or real, something had to have happened because there were plenty of people who claimed to be the Messiah. There were other people named Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, in the, the 19th and 20th century, there have been a number of scholars who said, I, we suspect that this guy, Jesus, and that guy, Jesus, were conflated into one person. But we know that's not actually true for a variety of reasons we'll get into today. We'll try to keep it as fact-based as possible, but ultimately faith comes into this. What I want you to understand at the beginning, though, is that you don't have to be a Christian to accept that this guy, Jesus, lived. Because by the standards of history, he objectively did live. By the standards of history, he objectively is someone that we know was alive. We know that he uh, lived a lived a life in Jerusalem. We know that he died. We know that a large number of people say he came back to life. And many of the historic standards that we would go by would look to the writings written within 150 years of his death and say, based on the standards of other people alive at that time, these would be considered historically accurate. For example, Socrates, we know lived, we know what he did, we know his thinking, and we know that he died, and we know how he died and where he died. And we know that not because Socrates wrote anything, in fact, Socrates never wrote a word, we know that from five people who chronicled the life of Socrates— Within 150 years of Jesus' death, more than five people chronicled his life, but we also know a significant number of people actually were eyewitnesses to him. We know, for example, that Matthew was one of the apostles. We know that Mark uh, followed Peter around, and the book of Mark was Peter's account of Jesus' life. We know that Luke interviewed people, interviewed eyewitnesses, and wrote his book. We know that John actually was Jesus' best friend, and we can attest to John's relationship with Jesus based on uh, his relationships with people like Ignatius and Polycarp, who we also know lived. So in other words, you've got to write a lot of people out of history to write Jesus out of history, and these are our very close-hand accounts of him. We know that Jude and James, who authored books of the Bible, were Jesus's half-brothers. We know that Paul claims to have a supernatural encounter with Jesus, but also Paul writes that Jesus did appear to his brother James. We know that Paul says he appeared to more than 500 people, many of whom at the time Paul was writing, he says, were still alive. Whether you accept that or not, we do, by historic standards, actually have more accounts of Jesus written within 150 years of his life than we do, for example, the Emperor Nero. 
Now, no one disputes that Nero lived. No one disputes the chronicles of Nero's life, but all of those chronicles were written well after he had died. In fact, further after he had died than the chronicles of Jesus's life existed. We actually have more copies of scripture and then we do of Julius Caesar's works. Uh, Julius Caesar's history, the Gallic campaign, the surviving history of the Gallic campaigns that we have was written 800 some odd years after Julius Caesar died. No one disputes that Caesar wrote it. No one disputes Julius Caesar wrote that. We just don't have the originals. We don't have the, so to speak, the autographed copies. The copies we have that are closest in time to Caesar were 850 years after him. We've got actual scraps of scripture that are preserved from within 150 to 200 years of Jesus's death. And we do believe, most historians do believe that the actual scripture, Matthew, Mark, John, James, Jude, uh, Revelation, uh, the the letters of Paul, the rest of the New Testament were all written within 30 to 50 years of Jesus's death. Now, we can dispute parts of the timeline, but that's widely accepted by historians. So take out of this the Messiah for now and just accept that there was this man who lived. He died a cruel, cruel death in Jerusalem in 33 AD. Today is the anniversary of that death. We celebrate this globally, if you were a Christian, with over 2 billion people, and None of you who do celebrate it, by and large, can go to church unless you're one of those churches that's an open defiance of the shelter-in-place orders. None of us can go to church right now as much as we would like to this weekend. Uh, I I typically go to church on uh, noon on Friday for a Good Friday service and then back to church on Easter Sunday. And so I want to spend the next three hours with you, two and a half hours now, talking about the historic impact of this and how it shapes the worldview of the West, how we can view things outside of raw politics. We're so focused on politics, and yet this matters. This guy died and shaped the planet, and if you're like me, you believe he rose again from the dead, and that is real truth. And so it shapes everything. And it has real personal meaning to me and real personal obligation as well. And over the next few hours... I want to get into that with you as well. I want to talk about that, how it shapes me, how it shapes my worldview, allow you to get a sense of who I am. I do not do this show to kind of rub people's noses in religion, and I get accused of that sometimes, uh, but I really do feel strongly that it, if the historians are right, if it's even in the top five of the most important events in human history, then just as I spend time every year talking about D-Day and I spend time every year talking about the revolution and I spend time every year talking about the landing at, at Plymouth, and I do, I, I, I mark these occasions at least, if this is the most event, important event in human history, we should be able to sit around for the next few hours and have a detailed discussion about it and how to view the world in light of what happened. And that's why this is the Good Friday Show. And I'm Eric Erickson, and I hope you'll hang out with me for the next few hours. It is Eric Erickson here. This is the Eric Erickson Show, and this is the Good Friday program. You'll notice, I'm sure, that when I do music on this program, I have a distinct preference to avoid 
songs that have lyrics in them. I try to do it. We try to cut up the music here to get rid of it because I don't like to talk over words, but I make an exception for uh, Christmas and Good Friday. We don't play music throughout the Christmas season, but uh, here we do. Also highlighting some Georgia groups. Uh, we will throughout. Obviously, Third Day will be in there. Uh, we also got a, a great group out of Watkinsville. Surface of the Deep will be in the mix and others from Georgia. And I, I got to play Johnny Cash, of course. Uh, I, I do this show and I plan it as much around the music as around the themes. I actually don't sit down and outline the show. And I probably should because it is, is a little bit of a level of sermon. And just for those of you who don't know, I, I'm, I'm not talking out of turn here, so to speak. I mean, the gospel scripture, the history of it, it's for everyone. But years ago, I did wind up going to seminary because I kept getting asked to preach so much, and I I felt very uncomfortable. And so I went to seminary, and I actually, I fell in love with the the learning. When I went to seminary, I actually went to Reformed Theological Seminary, and John Soule, some of you may know, the was the head of RTS in Atlanta at the time, and he took me to lunch, and he said, listen, you got to promise one thing before you come to seminary. And I said, what? And he said, well, you've got to promise me before I tell you what you're promising. (laughs) So I said, okay, I mean, how bad could it be? And I said, okay, I promise. He said, great, don't come to seminary. Uh, How is that going to work exactly? Well, he said, listen, come to seminary and take classes, but don't go to Uh, don't go to seminary with the mindset of a seminarian because you'll sound like that on the radio and no one's going to listen to that. No one's going to want to listen to that. And so it was great. He he told me, just come take classes, take the classes I'm interested in. And so I have, Uh, I've been going, I, I'm technically on the path to, I, well, I I transferred into a PhD program to get my uh, PhD in uh, cultural theology, but I'm, I need to transfer back to RTS. I, I'm remote learning at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary right now, and I love it. Bruce Ashford, the professor I'm working with, a wonderful human being. I absolutely adore him. But I need to be in a campus setting. I'm not good for remote learning. And frankly, I'm too busy right now. I'm doing three hours in the morning and two hours in the evening on radio. I got four hours in between, and in between I got I to gotta eat. I got to go to the gym. I've been really bad about that while we're in quarantine and the kids are home and I can't go to the gym. Exercise from home is no more my thing than learning from home. But I'm doing my best, and I would love to go back into the classroom. So I, I took all the the deep theology classes, covenant theology, biblical theology, the history of the church, uh, systematic theology. And, and then after I took all of those in apologetics, I started into the Old Testament prophets and the Gospels, and I've been doing the Bible classes. I haven't done Greek and um, Hebrew yet, but I'm mindful along the way that this is my pulpit. And that rubs some people the wrong way to say, but it's I have a platform and reach more people than than any preacher in a megachurch in this country reaches on a Sunday. More than a million people will interact with me in a week between what I'm talking about on radio and what I'm writing about online. And I know what Scripture says about leading people astray, and that's why I needed to go to seminary to to improve my depth of knowledge, and and so I have. And it's been a deeply rewarding experience. And to be able to do something like this and a platform like this on a day like this, commemorating the most important event in human history is a real impact for me, a real, real mindful that I've got an obligation 
to you guys to be as honest and straightforward as I can. And we're going to start playing some more music here. I love John Mark McMillan. And when we come back, we'll get into the thick of things. And I hope you'll hang out with me for the next little while as we dive into all of this. It is Eric Erickson here in the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia and the nation and the world on the internet. You can get the podcast if you would like. Uh, it, although it, we got to strip the music out of the podcast because podcasting is weird. And But you can still get it if you text the word show to 33777. We're on Stitcher. We're on uh, you name it. We're everywhere. and We are ubiquitous, if you will. And... Um, lost my train of thought. <laughs> you can get us on the internet. We just can't run the music uh, unless the show is live. And I do shake it up. I know what I wanted to say. I published the profile on Apple Music and Spotify now, E.W. Erickson. You can find the playlist for today's program. Uh, these are all Christian artists. And uh, there, there are a couple songs you probably won't actually be able to get. Uh, I've got some special access to and, and have permission to be able to run them, uh, but they're they're out there, and I, I like to highlight, particularly Georgia groups and Georgia churches. There are some Georgia churches that are in here. There are some great bands from around the country, and if you're just tuning in, the reason that I do this on Good Friday every year, it's a recalibration for me, more so than it is actually for you. Uh, it, it, this week, I specifically refuse to write about politics on Holy Week because there are so many meaningful things out there that get left by the wayside. And this is the anniversary of the most important event in human history. Uh, if you are atheist, if you're secular, if you're of any religion, today is the day because you can't deny that the impact of this guy dying in Jerusalem in around 33 AD fundamentally changed the world. Whoever you are, wherever you are, it is an impact that reverberates in human history. And more so by Christians who believe on the third day he will rise again from the dead and, and has done so and is alive. And I will explore that aspect of it with you, but if I can spend some time as we open this program up today, who was this guy? And what is the actual evidence that this guy existed? Let's begin with Socrates, if we can. We all accept that Socrates existed, though Socrates did not leave any writings behind. Now, there are actually a few people who are so intent on believing Jesus is imaginary, they've decided that Socrates himself was imaginary, and they're largely weak-minded fools, I, I think we can all agree. Uh, if you've got to write Socrates out of history because you've got to write Jesus out of history, that yeah, that's on you, buddy. Uh, Socrates, though, he didn't write, just like Jesus. And people say, well, you know, if if you're going to tell me that Jesus is God, I, I want real proof. Well, let's not even get there yet. Let's get to, was he a real human being? You know, scholars accept that this guy was real based on the standards of history. They accept he's real. Socrates had no writings, but Plato, Xenophon, and Aristophanes, all who knew him, wrote about Socrates. And we get knowledge of Socrates from those who knew him and wrote about him, and the same is true with Jesus. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of atheists who say Jesus wasn't even a real person uh, say, okay, abandon all of the eyewitness testimony of him and now prove it. 
Well, there's actually still, even if you abandon the eyewitnesses, Matthew, uh, Mark, John, arguably Luke, but definitely those Luke talked to, uh, Paul, James, Jude, well, there's still plenty of historic accounts uh, that would corroborate his existence just as they corroborate the existence of Nero, of, of Caesar, of Socrates. Modern scholarship has spent a good bit of time trying to disprove biblical writings. And again, if you start from the premise that they're frauds, then guess what? You're probably going to conclude that they are frauds. But we largely know if you're willing to give it even some benefit of the doubt here. We largely know that Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew. Mark, the gospel account of Mark was written from the testimony of Peter. Luke was written by a doctor who interviewed eyewitnesses and investigated their claims. John was written by the Apostle John. Three of the four were based on eyewitnesses. The fourth was based on interviews with eyewitnesses by one who later became an eyewitness to the works of the apostles. Additionally, there are the separate books of Peter, John, James, and Jude. They're all written by eyewitnesses to Jesus. But it goes beyond the books, though. So there was a man named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was born in AD 130 in Turkey and died in AD 202 in France. We've got the writings of Irenaeus. We've got the writings of people who document Irenaeus lived. We know from Irenaeus he studied under a man named Polycarp, and we know Polycarp existed. Polycarp, one of my favorites of the early martyrs. We've got the writings from Polycarp. We've got the writings about Polycarp. Polycarp was born in 69 AD. He was martyred in, in 8155. From the writings of others about Polycarp, from Polycarp himself, we learned that he and a man named Ignatius studied under an older gentleman whose name was John. Ignatius, who wrote and was written about with Polycarp, they were two of the very first leaders of the early church after the apostles. Ignatius was born around 35 AD. He was martyred by being fed to wild beasts while being disemboweled around AD 107. Ignatius and Polycarp both claimed that they studied under this guy named John, and they both identify him as the Apostle John. Irenaeus identifies John as the Apostle based on what Polycarp and Ignatius said, and they identify the Gospel of John as the Gospel written by John, and they learn from John about Christ as an eyewitness of Christ. Now, there was a man named Clement as well who existed. We know he existed because of his writings. We know he existed because of the writings of others. Paul actually referenced Clement in Philippians 4.3. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Clement, through his writings and the writings of others, he came into contact with Peter and Paul, possibly came into contact with John. Clement was not an eyewitness to Jesus, but he was an eyewitness to these other men. Irenaeus claimed Polycarp and Ignatius studied under John. Polycarp and Ignatius claimed the same thing. They treat John as an eyewitness. Clement was an eyewitness to Peter and Paul for sure. He documented their existence and their claims to be eyewitnesses. You know, Polycarp was burned at the stake. Ignatius was disemboweled and fed to wild beasts. Clement was tied to an anchor and thrown into the sea. They refused to recant. They refused to disavow Jesus. Peter, John, Matthew, James, Jude all wrote books of the Bible claiming to be eyewitnesses to Jesus and the events of his life. There's Paul, who we know persecuted the early church. We know that from independent sources. And then he claimed a supernatural physical visit from Christ after his death. The other church leaders who he sought to kill, uh, they, they actually brought him into the church. They affirmed his ministry. We, we don't even have to get to Paul, though, to establish these. Either Jesus existed or a whole lot of people had to be written out of history to claim he did not exist, to claim he didn't exist. 
you got to do too much. So now what about Jesus and his claims? What, what, what about his claims to, to faith? Well, you got to understand that early church tradition and, and Catholic and Orthodox tradition now, and even a lot of Lutherans, uh, even John Calvin and, and Zwingli and, and Wesley believed that Mary was ever virgin. That is that Mary never conceived a child other than Jesus. And so Jesus's brothers and sisters are either half brothers and sisters through Joseph and an earlier marriage, or that uh, they're first cousins in a close-knit family. Uh, either way, and I actually am of the belief that Joseph and Mary did have other children and that those children fit the profile. Historically, at that time in the Middle East, you would name the first child not after the father, but after the grandfather, and the second child would be named after the father. So we know Joseph's father was James, and James was named clearly after Joseph's father. James is Greek. Uh, the the uh, Jewish would have been Jacob. Matthew 1.16 tells us Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. So James's name in Greek is James, but in um, in Judaism and in Hebrew, it would have been Jacob. And then the second child was named Joseph. It fits the pattern. So they're clearly Joseph's kids. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Actually, Judas, we call him Jude for uh, more obvious reasons. Uh, we we know this family existed. He also had sisters. Mark 6, 1 through 6 says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and, and Joseph, and Jude and Simon? Are not these sisters with thee? Matthew 13 says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas are not his sisters with him? So he clearly had a family. He had brothers. He had sisters. Many people may not realize that based on the eyewitness accounts of Jesus's friends, Jesus's family actually thought he was a nutter. I mean, they thought he was was a, a nut. You, you've got this whole liar, lunatic lord framing. Well, his family was all in on lunatic from Mark 3. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him in, and, and they called to him. A crowd was sitting there, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. I mean, this was an intervention. His mother and his brothers were there trying to get him out of the crowd and and apologizing for his behavior. I mean, Mary clearly knew he was special. In John 2, you know, this is an eyewitness account. John was his best friend. We, we've got external sources who confirm that John was real and this was his uh, account of Jesus. And Mary is there with, Jane, with um, John. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And the mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You can see the mom in here is just, just she ignores him and says, do whatever he tells you. Clearly she knew. She had the angel Gabriel appear to her and say she was Emmanuel. She, I mean, she was going to give birth to the Messiah. She clearly knew. And yet here she is with his brothers trying to stage an intervention. And at the end of his life, the brothers won't even show up at his crucifixion. They will not show up. 
In fact, John 7 says, uh, now the Jews' feast of, Be- feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They did not even believe him, John says. They, they told him to get out of town. If you think you're such hot stuff, go to Jerusalem and show off. And they knew it would get him killed. And it does. Eventually it does. And they won't show up to his crucifixion. We've got the accounts from Matthew, from Mark, from Luke, from John. We know who's there. Mary is there seeing her son die on a cross. And who's not there? His brothers. They don't show up. You know, my sisters love me. I've got two older sisters. They would never call me Messiah. They would never call me Yahweh. Jesus's brothers, James and Jude, author two books of the Bible, they told him to get out of town. They didn't believe him. They wouldn't even show up at his execution to comfort their mother. And they would go to their deaths later in life proclaiming him not just Messiah, but Yahweh himself. James and Jude wrote books of the Bible. Jude says Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. He says his brother was God himself. Something had to have happened. And we should understand that they became believers. Something happened. Welcome back. I'm sorry. I, I should have probably been speaking sooner than this, but I like this song. This is a group called Carrollton. They're out of Ohio. I've got to know them a little bit. Uh, you know, that's actually one of the remarkable things about this. I, I've been very blessed in getting to know some people who you would not expect to be believers. And we disagree a lot on politics, uh, but we can we can find common ground on the gospel. And it's one of the things I've been more and more mindful of over time is that, you know, regardless of of where you live in the world, what sets Christianity apart makes it so distinct is that it's a global religion. It's not anchored to any one place. Uh, it's not anchored to, to Jerusalem like Judaism or Mecca like Islam or uh, the, the subcontinent, Indian subcontinent like Buddhism and, and Hinduism. It's it's not anchored. It is global. It, it the the spirit flows and can spread. And and uh, there are so many Christian apologists who say Jesus could have been born before the Roman Empire because he had to. The message had to spread. It's got to spread to all parts of the world. Uh, and I'm I'm blessed to be able to have a platform to be able to connect with people who I may not agree with them on politics, but we can agree on the gospel message. And one of the things I've learned is that there are people in in I'm white and I go to a, a church that is mostly white, overwhelmingly white, and I've got friends who are black and go to black churches and they see politics differently from me, and they they read from the same Bible, they love the same Lord, but they put. Uh, emphasis on different syllables of faith, which I, I understand given the faith traditions in the black community as well. But we all share a love of the Lord and, and the gospel message of, of freedom and in Jesus freeing us from our sins. And I'll spend some time on that. But I want to wrap up this one point on, on whether you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, whether you believe he rose again from the dead. The historic evidence is overwhelming that this man actually existed and that he died. There are secular sources that say as much and if we put the same weight on them that we put on the secular sources, the pagan sources of, of Julius Caesar and others, not only do you find we have way more uh, copies of Scripture from within 150 to 200 years of Jesus' death than we do of really any other ancient manuscript, we also have way more, in addition to having way more of those manuscripts, and they are overwhelmingly consistent, and all of them universally consistent in, in the key doctrines of the faith, 
taking all the uh, typographical errors that may be out there. They're amazingly consistent, both in type and in uh, doctrinal uh, significance and, and similarity. But also we've got way more written sooner to Jesus's death than we do to any of the others. We've got way more documentation written around the time of Jesus being alive than we do for Julius Caesar or Nero or so many others. And that should count for something along the way. So that's surface of the deep, uh, actually local here in Georgia, uh, the Watkinsville area. Wonderful, wonderful Christmas album and a, an Easter album as well. I uh, love to play that particular piece on Good Friday. It is Eric Erickson here, and this is unusual in conservative talk radio, I realize. And so let me reset real quick if you're just tuning in and you're like, why, why am I listening to this much music and stuff? Well, Historians, secular historians in a survey, multiple surveys, when asked to pick the most important days in human history, inevitably the top five and almost always the number one day in human history is the day of a guy being killed in Jerusalem sometime around 33 AD. It, it had global ramifications and, and not just Western civilization ramifications. In Iran right now, the fastest growing religion is Christianity. In in China right now, there are more Christians uh, worshiping in secret than are in the United States of America. That That's actually a heck of a statistic. There are more Christians worshiping in China today in secret than there are combined in secret and in public and, and just proclaiming to be one in the United States of America. It is a global religion. It is unanchored by a geographic location like every other religion. It, it has so much uniqueness that sets it apart. So many of the world religions are reflected in Christianity, but also the opposite. Um, that they're, they, The other global religions say, do not do to other people what you do not want them to do to you. They all have a version of the golden rule. It is Jesus who turned it on his head and said, do to other people, affirmatively go out and do to people those things you want them to do to you. And so every year I like to pause on Good Friday and do a reset for myself as much as for you guys. I, I hope you enjoy it, but this show is actually the show I do for me, which is why it's the show I hate to do the most. It is a, a difficult show. I, I've waited until this hour of the program because I know Abby's listening now so she can cry with me because <laughs> I do this because of the history, but I, I do this because of my own life. I And I, I tell the story every year. And I have never been able to not choke up telling it. In 2006, my wife and I were headed to Gulf Shores, Alabama to be with her family for Labor Day. My wife worked for Kirby Godsey at the time, the president of Mercy University at the time. And it was the Friday before Labor Day in 2006. And she calls and she tells me she thinks she's dying and she sounded like it. And I had to get her to the hospital. And her doctor had said uh, to scan her lungs it was either pulmonary embolism or it was a gallbladder. You know, a gallbladder can, uh, can process as a heart attack or a pulmonary embolism, so many things. Well, they scanned her lungs. They, they found some stuff there, but they didn't find a pulmonary embolism. So they said she's having a gallbladder attack. Uh, they, they did a few more tests and they did an ultrasound and they sent her on her way. And we went to Gulf Shores, Alabama, and she was in agony the entire trip from Macon to Gulf Shores. We had a one-year-old with us. And we got there, and on Labor Day, I had to take her back to the hospital. And we were surrounded by a bunch of idiot drunks who had done all sorts of stupid things to get injuries. And there was my wife 
in the emergency room, the one person not bleeding to death uh, looked like, and but the one person who clearly looked like she was on death's edge, they did tests on her and they said she's going to have emergency surgery. And I thought, well, you know, let me just pack her up and we'll get back to making. They said, no, no, she's going to die. She's got to have surgery now here. So this nice gentleman, this doctor, uh, Dr. Gerritsen, he performed emergency surgery on my wife. Turns out she had a bile duct blockage in addition to a failed gallbladder. And she recovered at the beach. Well, we got home, actually. There was a message from the local hospital in Macon telling us they saw something else and the scans needed to come back. Turns out they found a blocked bile duct. (laughs) Well, sometime around December, my wife's doctor decided she needed to go have her lungs checked in because they found some spots in her lungs. They didn't look like much anything. But when they scanned her lungs, they found a blood clot in her jugular vein. This was the week before Christmas in 2006. And while she was gone, my business partners at redstate.com, where I was the editor at the time, they called and told me we were out of money. Republicans had lost the Congress in 2006. No one wanted to buy ads on our website anymore. We were out of money. I needed to find a new job. And then my wife comes to the door and I've got to tell her that I got to go find a new job. We're out of money. I got to go find something. And she looks like death warmed over at the door. And she comes inside and she says, I got to tell you something. I say, I got to tell you something too. And she says, well, I, I got to go to the hospital. And I say, what? She says, they found a blood clot in my jugular vein. So she goes to the hospital. They got to put her in the hospital and put her on blood thinners. And while she's there, her doctor gets with a pulmonologist and they decide, you know, there is a, her family does have a history of cancer. There's a rare form of cancer that could present like this. And these spots need to be biopsies in her lungs. Now, a, a lung biopsy is a terrible thing. And she's got to have one. When I'm out of a job, we're on her insurance. And they do this biopsy. It's it's a rainy day in Macon the week before Christmas in 2006. My one-year-old is in daycare. My mother-in-law and father-in-law are with me. They call us down a windowless hall behind a security door after they've done the surgery. And they tell us the doctors had looked at the spots And the pathology lab had looked at the spots. And their conclusion was that my wife indeed did have this form of cancer. And it had spread to her lungs. And she had six months to live. And it was raining and there had been a terrible wreck. And there was a call and the doctor needed to go to the emergency room. And he said he could come back and talk to my wife. And I volunteered to be the one to have to tell my wife. She had six months to live, and I waited for her in recovery to wake up, and I told her, and she didn't believe me, and I was insistent. The doctor said so. She didn't believe me. She was too groggy. It was anesthesia, and oh my gosh, it's almost six o'clock. I've got to go get my child from daycare, so I rush off to get my child from daycare, and I get home, and I am so exhausted. I sit in the mud by the back passenger side tire of my beat-up Acura that literally had duct tape holding part of it. And I just began to cry. I am out of a job, and my wife has six months to live, and I have a one-year-old, and what am I going to do? And Evelyn, my one-year-old then, she's now 14. She's actually upstairs for me right now. She just patted me on the face as if everything was going to be okay. And I took her inside and I got her and me cleaned up and got her in bed. 
And I went to my office and just started writing emails to people that my wife is going to die. Please pray for us. And I, I, you know, Christians talk about the peace that, that transcends all understanding. It, it sounds really silly and really weird, and it doesn't make any sense. And, and, well, that's kind of a kooky thing. And, man, I know what it means. I know what it means. And I was able to get back to the hospital, had relief come to watch my daughter, and, you know, my wife and I, we had conversations that you don't have unless you think one of you is going to die. And she said, we, we, we reexamined where we were going to church at the time. The church was, we were the youngest couple by probably 35, 40 years. We didn't have any people our age in the church. Our, our, and it was where we needed to be. God put us there. It was where we needed to be. But we realized it was time for us to go. We had a one-year-old. There was no other child in the church. We needed to go. We move back, if you're familiar with Macon, we go to First Pres. Well, that's where we started out when we got married, and we moved to this other church because we needed something smaller when we first started out. Well, we moved back to First Pres. We've been there ever since, um, not nearly as active as we should be. We've got to work on that. But we, man, I mean, she's going to die, and we we have the conversations that you only have when something like that happens do i remarry or not what do i do where do we move what what job do i do and she told me at the time i, I was just running red state at the time tv had not come radio had not come nothing had come no real fame per se had come and she said you know you're you're a catapult for people and ideas put other people into the arena you put good ideas into the arena and that Regardless of what happens, and she still didn't believe she was going to die. She said, regardless of what happens, that's what you need to do with your life. Be that guy. Be the guy who challenges other people, the, the guy people can rely on, and, and the guy who's just going to tell you the truth and, and, and put an idea out there or a person out there and say, this is a good person. This is a good idea. Consider them. That's kind of what I do. About 1030, 11 o'clock that night, we're still up talking. She's going in and out. She's in a lot of pain. The doctor comes in to see her, and he says pathology looked at everything again, and they don't really know what it is they saw, but they have now concluded that it was benign, that it wasn't actually malignant. World in 24 hours. It just, it was incredible. And she was going to be fine. But you know the way the word. Funny the way the Lord works. It was they sent off the the biopsy to the Mayo Clinic to do a further test, and they figured out what it was. That it was a benign condition. And had it not been misdiagnosed, had it not been found and misdiagnosed in two thousand six, they would have never sent it to the Mayo Clinic. And ten years later, the Mayo Clinic called. I was being rushed into an ICU on the verge of death, and as I was being rushed into ICU on the verge of death, ten years later, in two thousand sixteen. The Mayo Clinic calls and tells my wife, we're seeing people with this. They're getting lung cancer. You need to come see us. And sure enough, she now has a rare form of lung cancer. And had she not been misdiagnosed in 2006, they would have never discovered it until it was too late. But they caught it in time to get her uh, some special, she's got a genetic form of cancer. There's no cure for it, but they can keep it in remission thanks to a special medicine that had she not been misdiagnosed, they would have never found it in time to get her on the medicine. The next day, Someone called and made an offer for my company, Red State. So I never actually lost my job either. It was a whirlwind, 24 hours. But I committed to, you know, God has done something amazing for us in every platform I have. I'm going to do something amazing for him. And I got in radio, and I knew I needed to do something. 
And I figure on Good Friday, the most important day in human history, I can do this show and you can take it or leave it. I hope you'll take it. That's Death Was Arrested from North Point, Andy Stanley's ministry in Atlanta. Uh, Death Was Arrested, a great song. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. And y'all, I, I, can I have a, a moment of just real candor with you? Uh, I, I occasionally like to pull the veil back in radio and it, it, it kind of show you what goes on behind the scenes. And I know a lot of hosts don't do that. And when I first got started out in radio, people said, no, 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 don't do that. You, you've got to keep the magic alive. And I don't know. I've always been one of those people. If I found out how the trick was done, I'd tell you how the trick was done. I'm just that sort of person. And I, I'm not giving you the number because I, I'm not here right now. Because I can't do this with you right now. Uh, I, I I can't interact with you at that level. I want to interact with you with my voice and what I'm saying. Um, I have done this program now for nine years, and I have told the story about my wife and what happened in 2006 countless times, and I can't not get emotional. I can't. I can't do it. It's hard, and I know there are so many people who get some level of comfort from it who know that I've been through these things and, and, and I'm going through things right now. My, my wife has a form of cancer and there's, there's no cure for it. It's kept in remission by a pill. One day the cancer will mutate around it. We, we just, we, we pray that our kids are going to be grown. And it is faith in which I get my strength because I, if man, Life would not be worth living going through some of these things if if there wasn't a guy upstairs who you knew loved you and and would see you through it. And I, when people say how how can you believe this is unjust? How can you believe in this God? I, I can tell them because of this day, because of this day, he went through it too. He went through it too. I'm not living a lie. I'm living a life, and I'm living a life. And I know that the God of all creation, the maker of heaven and earth, who brought bread from heaven and water from rocks and raised me from the dust of the earth, and he stitched me together in my mother's womb, he didn't give himself a pass. On this day, 1,987 years ago, the first person of the Trinity sent the second person of the Trinity to a gruesome, gruesome death. He gave himself no escape from this life. So how can I think I deserve an escape from this life or you deserve an escape from this life? But we know that if you believe this is the worst, you'll ever have it. Life's not fair. It was never meant to be fair. Life can suck. We're we're in a global pandemic. You're locked in your house. You can't go to church. You're listening to me because you can't be there. And I got to tell you, he's with you too. He's with me. That's why I do this show. That's why I do this once a year to make sure you understand you're not alone. We live in a world that wants you to believe your your views are cuckoo. You believe in this guy who came back to life. Cuckoo. Imaginary sky god. I get told that all the time. No, I believe. I, I, I genuinely believe. And I hope you'll believe. And you believe by faith. But it's an evidence-based faith that I spend this day on the evidence and on the theology. And I went to seminary so I can talk to you at a greater depth about it. And I need to get back to seminary so I can go even deeper. I, I love to preach on Sundays. I love to fill in for pastors. I, I love to go talk about God instead of talking about politics. And today I get to do that. And, and I hope you're okay with it. Uh, and I, But I do this not for you. I do it for me. I've, I've got to do this. I have to do this. Uh, I could not not do this. 
And I, there are people who get mad at me and say, you'll never actually make it big in radio unless you give this up. And I'm okay with that. I've come to terms with that. This is necessary for me. And when we get back, let's go a little bit deeper. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. And this is my Good Friday program. I realize if you're in conservative uh, talk radio, you you don't expect to come on to a a talk radio program uh, in (laughs) typical conservative talk and say, well, what on earth? What is this? Uh, well, why, why is there, there this music and, and this guy on the radio, the, this conservative guy who otherwise talks about uh, politics and the news talking about Jesus? Well, it's Good Friday, the most important day in human history. A man laid down his life for the rest of us. Uh, the world went dark because all the sons, all the sins of humanity, past and present and future, were piled on top of this one man on a cross. God Almighty had to turn his back on the side of it and the world went dark. Uh, It it is worth spending one radio show a year talking about. And I want to go a little deeper with you beyond the personal, and I want to get into the theological. Uh, And I want to begin, frankly, at the beginning. It is lost on us because we don't speak Hebrew. Just how poetically beautiful Genesis 1 is in Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I I performed a wedding. Actually, it was my producer's wedding, Charlie. And I read Genesis 1 in Hebrew. Had to teach myself to, and I I butchered the pronunciations of some. But it's remarkably beautiful, and and I I don't know that people get it. You know, the the number seven resonates throughout history, the the seventh, the, the Sabbath, the seventh day rest, so that thing we, leave, we we want to get up to, we want to be there. We, we are perpetually in the quest of the Sabbath, of the rest. And all humanity always has been. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and in Hebrew, that is a seven-word verse. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, l- hey, listen, I'm doing this on the fly. There, it, it, it's 10 for us, seven in Hebrew. The middle letter, the middle word is et. Uh, the, the emphasis the, of, of it, it signifies the nouns. God created these things, the heaven and the earth. God did it. You know, the atheist can tell you what happened all the way back at the beginning of time, the Big Bang. They can't tell you what was before. And and various people of various um, scientific persuasions have ideas that, you know, they used to, uh, metaphysical scholars of a thousand, two thousand years ago believed it was turtles all the way down. That, that was a philosophical idea of, of the world was held up on the back of a turtle. And what was underneath that turtle? Well, a turtle. Underneath that, a turtle. And, and turtles to infinity and beyond. And now you've got the ideas of the multiverse and whatnot. I, I know, I, I can tell you what was before the Big Bang. God. And I, I have to tell you, there are those who say, well, well, that that's no different than saying the multiverse. How do you know? I said, well, well something caused the universe to be. And from that, something caused the stars and the planets to form. And from that, something caused you and me and and the world itself to be created. And we got intelligence. And pretty soon you're talking about something that sounds very much like a god. 
You can call it a random act. You know, Lucretius talked about uh, this this vibration. Lucretius would was was a Greek philosopher, and and he was a nihilist. He he didn't believe there was a god, and he had to extrapolate the the vibration of atoms. But it, what gave the atoms vibration? Well, the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, "Let there be light." Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness. He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, even if you're Christian, you may not believe in a, in a physical, actual seven days. You can, seven phases, the word used for day can also be used for phases. We, we don't know. Listen, listen, the sun and the moon were not created until what, the, the third day? And so real hard to say there was a 24-hour day when it, um, the the sun and the moon, they didn't even get created until what, the, the fourth day. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let there be signs and seasons. And and so I, you you can go along with phases if you want. I actually don't know that I know anyone who's a young earth theorist. They're, they're, they're out there. I'm always amazed when I encounter people say, you Christians believe the earth's only six, seven, 10,000 years old. I, I don't know that I know anyone who believes that. I'm in seminary. I'm sure I'm, I'm in school with some, but I, I don't know that I know those who do. Nonetheless, 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 um, there are those who think in seven days and there are those who don't and there are those who think it's all a bunch of hooey and, and it's a bunch of nonsense and and there are those who have tried to rationalize and balance between them. But, you know, I always thought it was, was funny. It was a Catholic priest who came up with the idea of the Big Bang. And... A lot of the leading scientists of the day, including Albert Einstein, rejected the idea because they thought it was a priest trying to justify Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And, and now it's the prevailing theory of the day, a big bang. You know, when Moses writes Genesis 1, it is in defiance of the cosmogony of the world of the time. Now, cosmogony is a fancy word. And all it means is theory of the creation of the universe, your cosmogony, your worldview, if you will, except the, the, the physical worldview, how the physical world was built. Moses says, you know, there is one God and this God created everything and he is your God and he is my God, whether you recognize him or not. Uh, and these objects in the sky, they're just these things he put up there. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be there for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And he set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. I love this. My theology professor, my my seminary professor, Derek Thomas, who I dearly love, he's the uh, senior pastor at First Presbyterian in Columbia, South Carolina. He notes it's a throwaway line in the original language. Uh, and the stars, uh, you know, the Moses was a prince of Egypt. He, he believed that he was raised to believe the sun and the moon were gods and the stars were gods. In fact, the Egyptian cosmogony of the day is that there was one God who self-pleasured himself, let's say, and, and the release, 
each of those things released became gods, and those gods are the stars of the sky. That that was actually the prevailing cosmogony of the day in Egypt and and in, in Canaan and, and in the, the the area that we would call Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent. It was a multi gods uh, all around the world. Wherever there was a religion at the time, there were multiple gods. The sun was a god, the moon was a god, the stars were gods, the earth was a god, and here comes this one crazy guy, a prince of Egypt, or so everybody thought, and he says, wait, 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 there is one god, his name is Yahweh, I have met him in a burning bush, and he created the whole world, and this is how he did it. In the beginning, God, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And ultimately, we get to the sixth day. You know, every day is good in Genesis 1. This is the impressive thing. Every day is good in Genesis 1. It creates the heavens. It's good. The earth, they're good. He separates the waters from the heavens and the earth and the dry land from the sea and the waters below, and it's good. He makes the animals. They're good. He makes the vegetation, and they're good. And then, and then, on the sixth day, he says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, the royal we, our And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heaven and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Everything was good, and the day God created man in his own image and likeness, he looked at all he had done with man added to it, male and female, and said, it is very good. And if you are a Christian, this is why you cannot go along with the prevailing sexual ethic of the day. Right here, the very first chapter of the Bible, I know there are those who want it to be so. But either the Bible means what it says and says what it means. And and I'm talking about, I get people all the time who say, do you literally believe the Bible? I say, well, I I believe the prophecy is prophecy. The apocalyptic language is apocalyptic language. The poetry is poetry. The history is history. What do you mean? Give me the verse. This is actually an obligation of the Bible, though. You don't have to be a a literalist per se. There's no such thing as a biblical literalist. There are some things that are meant to be figurative in the Bible. But this is not God created man in his own image. He created them male and female. So you you can't be down with the idea uh, of the prevailing sexual ethic of the day of, of transgenderism. No, God makes this man and woman. God stitched us together, raised us up from the dust of the earth. He stitched us together in our mother's wombs. We can't change that. And the prevailing ethic of the day says otherwise. God made man and woman. He put them together. He took the rib of Adam to make Eve. 
He put them together. He said, man can't be alone. He joined them in marriage. He established that a man will be with a woman and a complete person will be a man and woman joined in union together. That is a, a, a completed person is a man and woman. We're not meant to be alone. We're meant to be relational. That's why we're all in quarantine right now. COVID-19 has got us, got many of us cooped up alone. We are relational. We are supposed to be with other people. Men and women are supposed to get together and get married and have children. And that's not just nature. That's a God thing too. And we forget that in, in the modern sexual ethic of we, we've got so much free will, we're almost, we're, we're slaves to our sexuality these days. God had a plan. And, you know, liberty and freedom actually come from embracing God. He frees us from the shackles of sin. And that's what's so monumental about today is Good Friday. He was so desperate to have a relationship with us He was willing to die for that relationship. He wanted you and me to be free of sin and be with him. That's an amazing thing. No other religion on planet Earth has anything like this, and secularism just has worms eating your body. Christianity tells you all you got to do is accept this guy, Jesus, who was willing to die for you, and he conquered death for you. And if you'll accept him as your Lord and Savior, you can be with him forever. You can't get an escape from this. I can't get an escape. My wife can't get an escape. You can't get an escape. But man, this is the worst you'll ever have it. Just just hang on. He's with you. He suffered too, and it'll all get better. That is Ellie Holcomb, uh, Drew Holcomb and the neighbors, and Ellie Holcomb, uh, just wonderful people. Uh, I've interacted with with her husband a little bit, not not much, don't really know him, but Man, I, I just, I love their music. Uh, what, what a great couple. They've been online now as everyone is quarantined and doing live concerts from their home, live music. It's, it's just, it, it's nice to see people stepping up at this time. By the way, if you want the music from the program on Spotify or on Apple Music, I'm E.W. Erickson. I have the lists of music up there uh, for your consideration. And there's some, there's some great stuff out there. Uh, and I realize for some people, this is, this is a little deep and maybe a little too personal. There, there are people who think I overshare and uh, that I overpreach, that I am too preachy. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. I am. Uh, and I, I'm not going to apologize for it today. There are days that I will, but today, no, because today is Good Friday. And when we come back, I want to spend a little time on the Proto-Evangelicum and what came of it. Because in Genesis 3, the fall happens. The serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And she ate of it and she passed it off to her husband who was with her and he ate And their eyes were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And you can say it's myth. I believe it is true. I do. I do. I'll go to my grave believing it is true. What is interesting there is that Eve was not alive. She was not created. When God said to Adam, don't eat of the the, uh, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she wasn't there. So she added to God's words, but she wasn't there. Adam should have should have been more clear with her. And then Adam knew that that's why Adam is the one that sin passes through man, because 
Eve was not around. She's got some plausible deniability. Man, Adam doesn't. He sucks. <laughs> and and so we need a new and better Adam. We, we need a Jesus. And God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Jerome, when he did the Vulgate, the first Latin Bible, he made a typo. And, and he said, she shall bruise your head and, and you shall bruise her heel. And that's where Mary's stature began to rise. But we have enough copies of Genesis we know it was actually he he, the Christ, he, he will bruise your heel. This is the proto-evangelicum, the, the announcement of the gospel. The, the, the gospel message is here in the third chapter of Genesis, and it reverberates through history. It reverberates through Good Friday. It reverberates through us. It reverberates through today as we're all home and can't even get to church. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming. You, you know, a, after Cain and Abel, it seems very clear that Mary thought um, Cain sounds like the Hebrew forgotten. There's a suggestion there. Maybe this this sounded like it. And then Cain and Abel, we know what happens there. And they have another child named Seth. And Seth is appointed. He appointed. That That's what the name means. And it, it seems that Adam and Eve really think that, hey, okay, this is all done. We're good. We're, 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 we're going to be good. Seth is going to be it. God appointed him to deliver us. No. And, you know, this continues on. Noah, who was born and in, in probably within the lifetime or at least definitely within the, the immediate living memory of Adam and Eve, Noah is is given a name, and, and his name essentially means the rest, the Sabbath rest, that they're going to find rest in Noah. They think that Noah is going to be the one who provides them escape, and he does to a degree. He provides them safe passage in the ark. He is he is definitely a representation of what is to come, but what is to come is so much greater than anyone could imagine. One who can take our sins and make us clean and give us a relationship with God. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. This is unusual, I realize, uh, for some of you. You're, you're not expecting this. Uh, that's Andrew Peterson, Is He Worthy? I wish I could play the whole song. There's only one song that I play the entirety of, and you will hear it at the end of this hour. And it is probably one of my favorite. It, it is my favorite one. Uh, my son and I both love it. And we'll get there. Um, it is by a band you've probably never heard of. And it's just, it's a special song for me. Now, resetting for those of you who are just joining. The, the, I do this show every year. It is Good Friday. Good Friday. None of us can be in church right now. And it is Good Friday. It is holy. the end of Holy Week. Jesus will rise on Sunday. He's already risen. We'll we'll celebrate it on Sunday. And it, it, come and worship with me this hour, if you will. Uh, and, and let's chat about the bigger things in life than the virus, than the politics, than the press conferences. There is a world out there created by a creator who loves us and wants a relationship with us. And we get so focused on the news of the day and so fretful and worried and we're stuck at home and we need outlets. Let's remember the big things. In Genesis 15, 7, God says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur 
of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought God all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram, then still called Abram, drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give the land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kinzenites, the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And you'll have to forgive me on the pronunciation of some of the names. This is God's covenant with Abraham, a God who keeps his promises. Let's, while we're all stuck at home, let's note a few things. First of all, in the, we know from archaeological evidence that, that what's happening here conforms to the archaeological evidence of the day, an illiterate people needing to make blood oaths with their local tribal kings. They would cut animals in half, and the blood would pool between the parts of the animals, and the person making the promise with the king, the king would say, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, and if you do, I'll bless you. And the person would walk between the body parts. And again, this is archaeological evidence from the day. The person would walk between the parts of the animals. And the symbolism here is that if you keep your promise, the ruler will give you all these things. And if you break your promise, you're going to wind up like the animals. You're going to be drawn in quarters. You're, you're going to die. And it's a visual representation. The blood on your feet is a visual reminder. The, 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 the dead animals, a visual reminder. You're going to die if you break your promise. And Abraham agrees to do this. God says, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. And he says, what are you going to do? How, how am I going to know this? Abram says, how, how am I going to know this? And God says, bring me the heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a, a young pigeon. And Abram, he, he brings all those. He doesn't cut up the birds. He cuts up the rest. And he expects to walk between them. And what happens? Instead, God walks between them. God walks between them. God makes a promise with Abraham. And when Abraham expects to walk between it, God says, I got this, Abraham. I'm going to take on your end of the deal too. 
Just just ponder that for a second. The God of all creation, he wants a relationship so badly with us. I, I talked in the last hour uh, about God uh, creating Adam and Eve in their image. He, he walked with with mankind. He wants that relationship. And he tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to do all these great things for you. And Abraham says, all right, God, how am I going to know this? And God says, cut up the animals. Let's make a deal. And Abraham cuts up the animals. And what does God do? Boom, puts him to sleep. And Abraham has this vision. He knows it's a vision of God. God himself is walking through the pieces. God's saying, Abraham, if you fail me, I'm going to die. And he did on Good Friday. Abraham does this. And Abraham doesn't die. And Abraham's people, they don't die. It's it's God himself who decides that, you know what? I'm going to take on the burden. And we see the same thing, you know, when Moses prepares his covenant with the people and that he comes down off the mountain and he makes this covenant and, and the people say, we will be God's people and God will be our God. And, and they do a sacrifice and they sprinkle blood all over. He says, I, I'm making a new covenant. Behold, all your people, I will do marvels such as have never been created in all the earth of any nation. And in the people against whom you are shall see the works of the Lord, for it is awesome. And the people, Moses comes down from the hill and, and the people say they'll do it. They'll be God's people. And there's a sacrifice and they sprinkle blood all over themselves. And it's to symbolize they're going to die if, if they keep, if they don't keep God's word. They're going to die. Well, now you have this bizarre setup. You got this very bizarre setup here because God's already told Abram, I'm going to keep this promise. And Abram, if you screw up the deal, I'm going to die. And then here comes Moses making this covenant. And the people say, no, 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 we're we're, going to do this. We're going to do it. And if we screw it up, we'll die. Well, now there's this conundrum. Does God kill himself and all of creation? How does God balance the two? Or does God create a man God? Does God himself do these things? Does God himself keep the promise for everyone? Well, that's what happens. He renews this covenant with Moses. And then fast forward now. We've got this covenant. We've got this law. We've got the moral code now, the moral code that's going to stand. And we get more and more a glimpse of this God. So we get this covenant with Abraham that God's going to be the one to die if Abram breaks the covenant. We get this covenant with 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 Moses. God gives us the moral law, and then the people say, no, no, we're going to be the ones to die, God. We're going to be the ones to die if, if we don't keep it. And, and then God goes, and those of you who are stuck at home should take great comfort in this. David in 2 Samuel 7 wants to build a he wants to build a temple for God. And the prophet Nathan says, go for it. You do it. But then God comes to Nathan and says, would you build me a house to dwell in? Go tell David this. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've moved 
in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I move with all the people of Israel? Did I say a word with any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people, build me a house of cedar? No, tell David, I'm going to build you a dynasty. So we know this guy, Jesus, who's coming, he's going to be of the line of David. And we know he's got to die. And we know he's got to be connected to God because God himself is that he's going to die if Abraham breaks his end of the deal. It's got to be a God-man. It's got to be Jesus of the line of David who takes on the sins of the world to die. And, and that's what he did. That's what he did. When he was on the cross, he uttered the words, it is finished. And it wasn't, I'm going to die now. The actual language in, in the Greek in the New Testament is, is of a contractual language that the deal is done. God dies. He keeps his end of the deal. He keeps the end of the deal for the Israelites. He dies for them, and he dies as he told Abraham would if Abraham's in, if the humans screwed up. God does it. It is finished. The contract's done. We got eternal life now. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. This is the Eric Erickson Show. It is. Believe it or not, it is. This is the day, the one day, I mean, I, I realize I'll throw Jesus in occasionally, but this is this is my serious day of reflection on Holy Week, and I do it every year, and I'm, yeah, if you're here for raw politics, you, I haven't taught politics today. I, I, I want to spend a moment real quick on God's covenant with David. From 2 Samuel 7, David tells Nathan he wants to build God a house of cedar to put the Ark of the Covenant in because God's Ark is dwelling in a tent, and, and that's where God is. And Nathan says, go, do it, do 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 what whatever you want to do. But then that night, the Lord, Yahweh, the Bible says, Yahweh came to Nathan, the prophet, and said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name, the great, great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over the people of Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put before you. He's talking about Solomon there, but he's also talking about Jesus. Is, is this not amazing? First of all, the, 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 there, there's a leadership lesson here is that God could have showed up to David and Nathan and said, no, no, don't listen to Nathan, David, listen to me. But 
He didn't undermine his prophet. He went to Nathan and said, no, go back and tell David, don't actually do that. God says, do this. It's a leadership lesson there, but there's another lesson here as well. God doesn't need a fancy house. So many of you want to worship with God on Sunday in your church building. God doesn't need a church building for you to worship him in. He was willing to hang out in a tent in the desert. He's willing to be with you on a live stream. He's willing to be with you in a house. He just wants a relationship with you. He's wanted a relationship with you since he created us in the Garden of Eden. And he sent his son to die on a cross to be afflicted with the rods of men and the stripes of the sons of men so that we could have a relationship with him. He would hang out in a tent in the desert. He was with the Israelites the whole way through, and still some of them wouldn't even believe. Is any wonder today you see people who won't believe stuff before their eyes? The Israelites had a pillar of cloud before them and a pillar of fire at night, and they still didn't believe. Just believe. He wants a relationship with you. And notice how he's got a plan. He revealed a peace to Abraham and then a peace to Moses and then a peace to David and then a peace to the people through Jeremiah. And then he revealed it in all of its glory with Jesus, the light of the world, shining in the darkness. The darkness will not overcome it. Y'all, we got real victory in Jesus because God wants a relationship with us and we just need to put our trust in him. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. This is my Good Friday special. I do this every year in 365, well, you know, Easter just, so not quite 365 days again, but you get my point. I'm going to do this all over again next year. Fair warning, fair warning. And now we get to the heart of the matter. The reason we're here. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and released to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Jesus addressed them once more, or Pilate rather, addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, 
coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now before the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Surely this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had happened returned home beating their breasts. And all of his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in the stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. That is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. If that was the story, there would be no celebration of Good Friday. You know, there are two books of the Bible one by James, one by Jude, as I mentioned in the first hour. These are Jesus's brothers, James and Jude. It's not the Apostle James. The Apostle James was killed by the sword. It's documented in the book of Acts. And in James, Jesus's brother, who was not there for the crucifixion, who tried to lead an intervention to get Jesus to stop all this nonsense, to, to try to get Jesus to come home with his mother, he wouldn't even show up at Jesus's execution. Neither would Jude, neither would Simon, neither would Joseph, Jesus's other brothers, Joseph's brother, not, not Joseph's father. And, and yet James and Jude become leaders in the early church, prominent leaders. James becomes one of the most respected men in, in Jerusalem. And James, the brother of Jesus, goes to his death proclaiming Jesus is Lord. It is documented history. Eusebius documents it in the, in the uh, history of the early church that James was a respected man in Jerusalem. And the Jer- Jewish leaders came to him and said, we know you didn't accept him as God. Tell people he's not. And, and James not only says he's God, he says he's Yahweh. My sisters know me, they love me, they would never say I'm God, the creator God. They would never call me Yahweh. The leaders in Jerusalem were so incensed at James, they carried him to the top of the temple and they threw him off. Battered, broken, bleeding, hitting the ground, dying. He's still proclaiming his brothers, Jesus, and they stoned him to death. 
would a relative of yours proclaim you Jesus, proclaim you the risen Lord, proclaim you the Messiah to their death? Sure was sure was a stunt they were willing to keep up. And, and by the way, we, we, we have so many external documentations of these early people going to their death. Jesus' brother Jude as well proclaims Jesus God. Not only says that, he rescued a people out of Egypt. He's saying, Jesus is that guy. Jesus is that God. There had to be something there. You know, the earliest manuscripts of, of the Gospel of Mark end at Mark 16.8. That's where they end. The Gospel of Mark is the first gospel. The other gospels, foundationally, Matthew is an expansion. Matthew was written by the apostle, Matthew. It's almost a sermon based on Mark. Mark is Peter's account. Now, early gospel accounts don't include 16, 9 through 20. There are reasons we believe that it's authentic. There are reasons we believe, uh, and it doesn't contradict other things, but we do believe that later Peter had another person beyond Mark who was helping him write and probably added to the account. Uh, as traditions and customs were changing, they wanted to add a little more. But just just consider if, if the original Gospel of Mark, if it ended this way, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's it. That's how it originally ended. For they told no one, for they were afraid. That's the original gospel. Mark, the account of Peter as told through John Mark. And the way it originally ended is they didn't tell a soul because they were scared. And 2,000 years later, I'm on radio telling you the story. Because word got out. Word got out. There were literally dozens of of men who claim to be the Messiah. And only one we remember. Only one we worship. Only one had brothers who in life rejected him, wouldn't even come to his execution, and in death were willing to die to proclaim him not just a God, but the God, the God of all creation, the maker of heaven and earth, through whom all things were made, the light shining in the darkness. Something had to have happened. The, the people who say this can't be real, the people who say, yes, okay, Jesus is a historic figure, but he, but he can't be God. He, he just, he can't. There is no such thing as God. I would argue the burdens with them. We've got 2,000 years of history. We've got 3 billion people on the planet who believe this. More people believe in God than believe in anything else. More people believe Jesus is God than believe anything else on this planet. Something had to have happened for that to happen. 
particularly when his own brothers from external historic accounts rejected him in life and yet were willing to die to proclaim him Lord. Something had to happen, y'all. Something had to happen. I would submit to you the resurrection of Jesus Christ is as real as you listening to me on the radio right now. And you know what? If if I'm wrong, yeah, what's it bother you? And if I'm right, you get eternal life with a God who loves you. And you don't have to take my word for it. That's the key here. If I'm right, Jesus is alive. And if you sincerely ask him to be your Lord, you, you talk to him right now. You're not sure about it. You, 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 you think I'm a little nuts. You're, you're a little hesitant. Ask him. Let him convince you. 